Hello, welcome to the Lansing Area Church of Christ's weekly message podcast. If you'd like to learn more about LACC, please visit us online at lansingchurch.org. This week, Alex Bryant preaches Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, in a lesson called Empty Yourself. Morning, church. It's been great to worship with you guys so far today. Um, Hey, if you don't know me, I'm Alex. Um, I think most of you guys know me. Um, But hey, it's always good to introduce myself. Uh, I, a couple weeks ago, started a series. Uh, I'm going to preach a couple more times the rest of this year. uh, And I'm going to go through the book of Philippians. So last uh, last time I preached, uh, like three weeks ago, um, started it. It's called The Heart of Christ. I started preaching Philippians chapter one. We talked about the source of joy, where our joy should come from. Um, and today I want to talk about emptying ourselves. I'm going to talk through Philippians chapter 2. Uh, this chapter of Philippians actually carries kind of a lot of nostalgia for me. It's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I remember when I was um, even just a young Christian uh, back when Gibson's Coffee Shop across from LCC existed. Um, that's where I studied the Bible. That's where our ministry was kind of based out of for a couple years. Um, and uh, I remember, if, if you guys know, some of you guys might remember Eli Tinkle. Uh, he was my first discipleship partner, and I remember we were sitting down. I was, I'd probably just gotten baptized, not, you know, a couple weeks maybe before, and we were sitting down at a table in Gibson's, and uh, I don't remember how the topic came up, but we started talking about my pride, um, and so that was, a good, that was a good thing to talk about at the time, but I just remember thinking to myself, like, what, like, how do you even be humble? Like, what even is humility? Like, these are the questions you ask yourself when you're, you're just really starting out with the Bible. Um, and I remember just like flipping through this Bible, and I found myself at Philippians chapter 2, and the heading was Christ's example of humility. And I was like, this is it! This is amazing! The Bible answered my question. Uh, and I was just like, this is awesome. That was my first exposure to this chapter. Uh, I was sitting in a D time with, with Eli. And so I remember also just even a couple, maybe a year later than that, we had a semester where we preached through every verse of Philippians chapter 2 at our devotionals. And I remember... Um, that just being a really impactful semester for me, just really breaking down like exactly what was being talked about here. And I, it stuck with me ever since I love this chapter. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you love this chapter. Maybe you get warm, fuzzy feelings when you think about Philippians 2. I think it is one of the more popular chapters in the Bible. It's a great chapter. Uh, but as I was preaching, or as I was writing the sermon, I was thinking through it, I think it may be one of the most convicting and challenging chapters in the whole Bible. And I think, honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, we really allowed the words that Paul writes here to sink into our hearts. We may find that we don't actually like this chapter as much as we thought. Um, So hopefully you don't get offended by anything I say today. If you do, uh, you know, maybe question why you got offended. Um, But uh, um, I think uh, I just, I just, I was writing the sermon and I was like, I feel like spirit sometimes puts stuff on your heart. And I was just like, I don't really want to talk about this. Like, this is like, but this is like everything I was reading as I was studying. I was like, this is what I have to talk about. Um, so I just kind of want to let the chapter preach itself this morning. Um, so we're going to kind of go through and break it down bit by bit. Uh, and that's kind of what we're going to do here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk us through it a little bit. So what do you guys think? You guys ready? Um, I want to start by asking this question. What is your picture of Jesus? Like, when you think about Jesus, what kind of things do you think about? I think there's, there's so much that can come to mind. I think we can easily think of Jesus' power, his ability to command the wind and the waves and to drive spirits and impure you know, demons and sickness out of people. And, uh, so we can think about Jesus' power. We can think about Jesus' sacrificial love. 
Um, we can think about Jesus' wisdom. I love thinking about Jesus' wisdom. It always impresses me when I read through the Bible, uh, through the Gospels, and seeing the way Jesus was able to discern always what the right thing to do was, what the right thing to say was. That's one of the most impressive things about Jesus to me. We can think about Jesus' compassion. We can think about his leadership. He's the greatest leader ever. We can think about Jesus' righteousness, his perfection. And I wonder, maybe some of you guys think about this, but I wonder how many of us think about Jesus' humility. And I would argue that humility is, I think, one of Jesus' most defining characteristics. I think it's central to his character and to his heart, and subsequently, I think, the, the heart of God and uh, the Father and the Spirit. Um, but I think the humility of Jesus is, is one of the main thrusts of this chapter, and that's why the title, the heading is fitting, the humility or Christ's example of humility. Um, so I want to talk a lot about that today, uh, and let's just jump into it. We're going to start in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You guys are already there. Uh, it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Okay, so I think sometimes, if you, especially if you've read this chapter before, like you can kind of like breeze through. I find myself sometimes breezing through parts of the scripture because I know I'm going to get to some like really good stuff. And later on, like verses five, six, seven, eight, like those are like, that's like the meat of this chapter, right? That's like an awesome part. But I think sometimes we can kind of breeze past the beginning of the chapter. And there's some really important stuff that Paul just said here. Okay, first of all, he begins this chapter by appealing to the Philippians to be united. And this kind of is coming from this discourse he began at the end of chapter one in verse 27, talking about standing firm in one spirit. But he's calling the Philippians to be united. And I don't exactly know what the context is here. I don't know if there were maybe some interpersonal issues that were happening in the church there for some conflict with leadership or what. But Paul feels that it's necessary to call them to a greater standard of unity than they were holding for themselves. And that's how he starts chapter 2 here. And I want to camp here for a second because I think I think unity is a word that we can sometimes hear, and either we just kind of like don't really let it sink in or we brush it off because it feels sort of like this nebulous, like, impo- or even impossible thing, right? Like, what even is unity? What, what does the Bible mean when it talks about unity? What would it look like to achieve unity as a church? What kind of unity is God expecting of the church? Surely, like, he's not calling us all to be united at the cost of our individuality, right? These are questions that I've pondered and considered, and sometimes I think there's not really a clear or obvious answer, so I move on, and I think about other things. I'll, be, I'll figure out that unity thing later. But I want to break down really what Paul is actually saying here. First of all, he doesn't actually even use the word unity in this section at all. But I believe that's ultimately what he's driving at, and I think this is, this is how he chooses to specifically describe unity. He says these things. He says, be of the same mind, have the same love, and be in, uh, be in full accord and of one mind. And I want us to imagine here, this is, how, this is what they would do with the letters in, in, in the New Testament. When Paul wrote a letter to a church, what they would do is the house church leader or whoever would get up and read the letter in front of the whole assembly. And so I, I just want us to imagine, imagine Paul wrote this letter to us, to the Lansing church. And me or Joel was up here sharing this letter, and this is what Paul said to us. Be of the same mind, have the same love, and be in full accord and of one mind. How, how would you take that? How would you apply that? How could we apply that as a church? So when he says, be of the same mind, the Greek word here is, is phroneo. Um, and, and, and the word is getting at kind of our mind, our thoughts, even our opinions, our views, and understanding. And uh, you might look at this and you might think, oh, okay, just like in our views about our doctrine and, and Jesus and stuff like that, we need to be united. But that isn't what Paul says. He doesn't say, 
like, be of the same mind regarding Jesus. He says, be of the same mind. Period. There's no qualifier. There's no specifier. What do you make of that? How do you, what do you do with that? How is that possible? Okay, I'm going to get to that. The next thing he says is, have the same love. Okay, this is a little bit more straightforward, maybe. Love one another, have affection and goodwill for our brothers and sisters. It might be easier to understand, but it's also still very difficult to execute and apply, I think, at times. Uh, and the third thing he says is, be in full accord and of one mind. So this word here is sumsukos. I'm probably butchering that. Uh, but it's like the breakdown, if you look at each word separately, is like with your soul or your breath or your life. Like the, we're with one another at the deepest parts of ourselves. That's what Paul's talking about when he's talking about being in full accord and of one mind with one another. So already you might be reading this and you might be thinking, this is really, this is really difficult stuff. I was reading this, I was like, I don't want to talk about this. This is hard. To be united at this level with, like, we're all so unique and individual and we all have our own life experiences and we all come from different perspectives. How are we going to be so united? That's the question. And I wonder even, let's pause for a second, why does this have to be the standard? Why is this level of unity what Paul is talking about? Why do we have to agree on basically everything? You know, I think seemingly little things that we're content to disagree on, they have the potential to become big things that divide us, okay? To use a sports analogy, that's going to lose probably half the room. Um, It's football season, okay? You have to put up with uh, football analogies uh, during October, okay? Uh, Week three of the NFL season, uh, the Lions played the Baltimore Ravens. Some of you guys might remember this game. It was heartbreaking. Baltimore is currently 4-1. and one. They're considered a Super Bowl contender. The Lions, suffice it to say, are not. Um, you might expect that it would have been a lopsided game. Like, the Ravens coming in, heavily favored. They're making a playoff push. The Lions are kind of at the beginning of what looks like it may be a very, very long rebuild as a franchise. But it actually was not a lopsided game. It was actually a very close game. So close, in fact, the Lions were up 17-16, to 16, up by one point, with just over a minute left on the clock. They played three awesome defensive snaps and had the Ravens on like their own 26-yard line, fourth down, 19 yards to go. There's 26 seconds on the clock. It's like 99.9% chance the Lions win this game at this point. And this is when I made the point, uh, I made, uh, it was at this point I made the biggest mistake you can make as a Lions fan. I began to hope. I began to think we might actually win this game. And if you're any other franchise, you might have already turned the TV off. Like, it's like, oh, this is probably in the bag. Not a Lions. Not, not the Lions. That's not what happens, okay? What happened is the Ravens quarterback, he completed a 36-yard pass to set up what would eventually become an NFL record 66-yard field goal that bounced off the cross post and went through the uprights with zero seconds on the clock. And after the game, the Lions coach, Dan Campbell, he gave this explanation on this converted fourth and 19. That was the crucial play of that drive that we gave up. He said, we had everybody on the same page but one person, and it hurt us. And it ended up being that, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it, uh, but one of our defensive backs was playing man coverage and the rest of the defense was playing zone coverage. And he ended up being out of position. The receiver was open, made the reception, and the Lions lost the game. It's heartbreaking. But that's, you know, it's basically par for the course if you're a Lions fan. Um, But as a church, we're a team, right? You know, we may have different strengths. We may have different gifts. We may serve in different roles. We may serve at different capacities. But we have a common goal, right? We're pushing for the same thing. And that is to glorify God and to win souls for Christ. Amen? And because of that, we have to be on the same page with each other. I think Satan is looking for even the smallest of cracks in our unity so that he can exploit and broaden it to divide us. 
And that's why Paul says, no, you have to be of the same mind. You can't be mostly of the same mind. You can't be kind of of the same mind. You have to be of the same mind as one another, period. So how do we smooth out the cracks? How do we get on the same page with each other? I think the answer to that is found in another question. What is our common pursuit? As Christians, as disciples of Jesus, what are we pursuing? I talked about how our goal is to glorify God and win souls for Christ. But if we're disciples, if we're students, if we're learners of Jesus, what are we trying to do? Let's keep reading. Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul, he continues through this chapter, and he practically advises them that they can achieve this kind of unity through humility. And that's kind of the, again, the main thrust of this whole chapter here is Christ's example of humility. That's like the pinnacle point of, of what he's trying to teach here. But he starts with this. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In other words, like what you can gain or benefit from a situation, it should not be your primary motivator. Okay? So then you might, you might think, okay, well, what should be our primary motivator? This is what he says next. He says, count others more significant than yourself. You might think, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay? I've always heard that I need to take care of myself first, and then I can take care of others. That's what we're taught, right? I hear that all the time. I've preached this before. The world tells us, I think the world tells us this from a scarcity perspective. We believe this because it's true. We do need to be taken care of, right? Nobody would say that's not true. In worldly contexts, we can't trust others to do that. So we have to look out for ourselves first. But this is the kingdom, guys. This should be different, right? And this is what Paul says. He says, look to each other's interests. If everybody's looking out for each other's interests, then all of our interests are looked after. We no longer have to look after ourselves because there's 99 other people looking out for us, right? We don't have to make, worry about making sure we're taken care of. And I sometimes, sometimes I think we can even fear that even in the kingdom, we can be overlooked or slip through the cracks. And to a degree, I think this is true. People, even disciples of Jesus, are imperfect. But if you feel overlooked, I encourage you guys, I think that's actually an opportunity to refine your trust in God because God does not have cracks that we can slip through. Amen? He's always got us in mind. He cares deeply for each one of us at a very personal level. Okay? Do you trust that? Do you believe that? Okay, the next thing Paul says, have the same mind as Jesus. Okay, this is the key. I was talking about unity before I said I'd, I'd, I'd talk about how this is possible. This is how it's possible. We need to have the same mind as Jesus. If we're disciples of Jesus, what we're pursuing is to be like Jesus, right? Okay? You know, we can't be content with differences of opinion and views because we should all be striving to have the same mind as Jesus. Think about this. It should be obvious, right? If we've committed to being disciples of Jesus, then shouldn't we be becoming more similar to one another as well? If we're all trying to accomplish the same thing, shouldn't we be getting more alike? Shouldn't our unity and views thoughts, understandings, opinions even, get more and more, uh, gel more and more as we're sanctified and made more and more into the image of Jesus. Shouldn't that be what happens if we're all pursuing the same thing? You know what Jesus was? Jesus was humble. 
And that's exactly what Paul takes us next. He talks about how Jesus perfectly exemplified this humility. Okay? What did Jesus do? Uh, First, it says that he did not hold on to his equality with God. Okay? This, honestly, like, this isn't even applicable to us. Like, it should be a no-brainer that, like, Jesus didn't hold on to his equality. Well, I'm not even equal to God. So that, like, almost doesn't even apply. And yet, it does. <laughs> we should never, ever, uh, we've, we've never been equal with God in reality, right? But I wonder sometimes if we consider ourselves equal to or even sometimes greater than God in our hearts. Jesus, who actually was God, did not hold on to that equality. We've got to let it go, guys. We have to be humble. The next thing, I want to camp here for a minute. It says Jesus emptied himself. And the Greek word here is kinu or kinos. Uh, and this whole section is actually called the kinosis hymn after this uh, phrase, emptied himself. Jesus emptied himself. It says, uh, you know, the, the, I think the thing that keeps us from being humble is that we can, we, we can hold on to things, right? We have something to defend. We have something to protect. And I ask you guys, what do you need to empty yourself of to attain true humility, which is going to lead to complete unity? You know, I think it's probably different for each person. I do think one thing, and I think especially over the last couple of years, one thing that's, I think, made its way into our hearts, all of our hearts, I don't think anyone really is exempt of this, maybe the most obvious and widespread example may be politics, right? You know, politics existed in Jesus' day, too. Uh, they were different because it was a different government structure, but there were four main sects of Judaism uh, that most people recognize, Pharisees, Sadducees, and then you have the Essenes, who were kind of like these people that went off into the desert and just like decided to like they like would write the Bible and had very 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 strict almost ascetic practices. Uh, the zealots who were just super opposed to Roman uh, occupation of of Israel and and were very violent in their way of dealing with it. Um, some scholars add in scribes or teachers of the law or Herodians, uh, which were those Jews who had kind of adopted a more Greek or Hellenistic influence. Uh, yet Jesus, if you look in the Gospels never publicly identified with any of those specific sects. And in fact, if you look closely, I think, at the names and the backgrounds of the 12 apostles, you can make a pretty good case that they were made up of people from each one of them. Why is that? Because they were all at least a little bit wrong. (laughs) There was not one sect who had it all together. There may have been one that was closer than the other or whatever. They might have included part of the whole picture, maybe some more than others, but none of them had it all. And the same is true today. There's no political ideology that exists in America or the world that embodies the full truth of the gospel. There is no Jesus party, okay? And I think um, we can even take that to a church level. I think we're doing our best as a church, but there's no one church that has everything right, okay? We're doing our best. I think we're trying to stay humble, trying to stay teachable, but even we are not perfect, okay? So what am I saying? I, am I saying voting is pointless, that disciples of Jesus shouldn't be involved at all in politics? I'm not necessarily saying that, but I think we do have to make sure we're not placing too much stock, or I think more importantly, too much hope in worldly structures that, guys, they're not seeking to accomplish the work of the kingdom of God. They're not. They have their own agenda, and it's not this, right? Don't make what a political party or a certain media tells you your whole identity or even part of your identity or platform. That influencer role, the person who influences the most should be Jesus, right? Jesus alone. So what should we do? What did Jesus do? Paul says he took the form of a servant, okay? Jesus focused on serving. Let me tell you this. If we were all focused on serving one another, encouraging one another, finding ways to build one another up, make life easier for our brothers and sisters, or two, serving the community around us, 
alongside one another, working to improve the area we live in, like Hope is talking about in that video, or the world at large, we would have very little time to find ways that we disagree with one another. You know, I think it's the idle and inwardly focused person who finds sources of disunity and allows them to become uh, bitter roots. Amen? Let's, let's focus on serving, guys. Let's put our focus where it really needs to be. Okay, next. Jesus was born in the likeness of men. This is a great example of Jesus' humility. One, because even for Jesus, who was God, to become human at all is an incredibly humble thing to do. But if you look at Jesus' birth, I think sometimes we don't quite get the whole picture of what happened. We take, I think, the virgin birth a little bit for granted today. We think, oh yeah, Mary was a virgin for sure. That's awesome. You know who wouldn't have believed that? Probably everybody else. Jesus grew up in an outcast family, okay? If you look even at the Christmas story when they arrive at the inn in Bethlehem, which would have been probably a house, maybe even a relative's house, and they're sent, Mary, who's nine months pregnant, about to burst, is sent to, to the stable with the animals in a culture that was like valued hospitality more than, more than ours, for sure. That was not, that would not have been what happened. <laughs> they were sent to the stable because they were disgraces. They were outcasts. Why would Jesus be born into a family like that? Why would, he, I mean, you can really ask the question, why would he choose to be a human at all? It's an incredibly humble thing, but even to be born into a family circumstance like that, even for Jesus to have been born into royalty, human royalty would have been humble, but to be born into a family like that, he was perfectly humble, guys. And the next thing it says, he, was, he humbled himself to the point of death. You know, I think, I feel like each of these points could be its own sermon or at least its own sermon point. But Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus wasn't focused on making sure his name was clear. Okay, Jesus, he allowed himself to die the death of a criminal, of a robber, of a murderer. He wasn't worried about his image or his reputation. He was only worried about humility, right? Okay, so this is a radical example and calling of humility that Paul's laying out here for the Philippian church. I think it should be incredibly convicting to us. I hope you guys are feeling a little bit convicted right now just by the words that I've been been reading out of the scripture, right? Okay, so what are the results? What can we expect if we strive for this kind of unity and this kind of humility? Let's keep reading in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 9. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Okay, the result of Jesus' humility was this. God highly exalted him. He gave him the name above every name. Every knee is going to bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And God is going to be glorified. Those are the results of humility that leads to unity. Amen? You know, I think it's a common theme in Scripture that God exalts those who humble themselves. You see it all throughout. You see it... uh, um, from the stories and teachings of the Old Testament. Jesus explicitly says this in Matthew 23. Peter repeats it in 1 Peter 5. But humility does more than just lead to being exalted, okay? I think unity and humility are bound up with one another, and that's why Paul goes from unity and then describes how we can achieve that through humility, right? There are two concepts that cannot be separated one from the other. You can't have unity without corporate humility. The same way that true Christ-like humility will inevitably lead to greater unity. You know, I think we, we got to strive for this, guys. We have to strive to humble ourselves, to be united as a church, 
so that God can exalt us, right? God can do amazing things, I think, with a church that's united on a deep, personal, soul, like, breath, life level with one another. I encourage us, let's please pursue Christ-like humility and watch as God transforms not only our own hearts, but also our church, the Lansing area, and the entire world. Amen? I believe that's his plan. Thanks for listening to this week's message from the Lansing Area Church of Christ. While we're happy to share this message via podcast, we'd love to pray and worship with you in person. To learn more about our services or to connect with us, please visit us at lansingchurch.org. Have a great week and go with God.